It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. In this episode, we have an exclusive conversation with Francis Tophill, recorded at BBC Gardener's World Live. Hosted by presenter and broadcaster Nikki Chapman, the live audience listened in as Frances discussed what it's been like taking on a new garden of her own. We've got to talk about your new garden, haven't we? Yeah. Now, it's in Devon. It is in Devon. Um, We were chatting earlier. My sister's here. We found out that uh, Frances is from Kent. So quite different. Similarities with a lot of sunshine, but quite different. Yeah. How has it been? Because we've been following you on the show as well. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, we were all from the the same sort of like arid coastal region of Kent. And I I wrote my dissertation on the flora of Dungeness and, and shingle and that is something I love. And I think it's because of growing up on that coastline. I used to cycle every morning before school up and down to a little place called Kingsdown. And there's lots of amazing flora on that shingle landscape, which big, open, arid kind of landscape. And that's what I love and what I'm used to. So now I'm in Devon and I've got this very wet, south of Dartmoor, you know, so it catches all the rain, ferny, cooler. It's very different. And, I'm, and I, it's not a space I'm used to, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm not a designer, so I'm kind of working with that. In a she says she's not a designer and she designed the most beautiful garden. She's so <laughs> modest as well as our Francis. Well, <laughs> actually, I'm an award-winning designer. The award-winning, the one, yes. the one design I did. And what did you get here? I got a platinum. Thank See, you. she is modest. I'd have it stamped on my head if it was me. I'd have a badge or something made up of that. That's why I don't want to do another one, because it can only go down. No, never, never. But did you like the challenge? I mean, when you bought the house mm. uh, and, and you moved in, you, there, was there already an existing garden there? There is an existing garden there, yeah. And like a true gardener, the only thing I thought about when I bought the house was that the garden was east-facing. It never occurred to me, this is probably like a lot of first-time buyers probably do this, make a very obvious mistake. It never occurred to me that the east-facing garden meant that the house is (laughs) north-facing. I never get any light shining through the windows. But hey, I have got some sun in the garden. But it's, uh, it's got an existing garden. It's I say it's a small garden, but it's not. You know, for me, actually, it's the biggest space I've ever had. It's about nine metres squared. So probably about 
the size of this stage. You know, a decent size. Yeah. Um, it's got a ginkgo tree in it, which is obviously far too big for a garden that size. But the people I bought the house from planted it. And it's lovely and it's one of my favourite trees and it's a really ancient tree and it's used medicinally for, for memory loss and things like that. So I have massive respect for it. So I'll let it stay for as long as possible until it's too big and then unfortunately it will have to be chopped down. And with a small garden, I kind of wanted to observe um, and see what would happen, I think, with anything. You, you know, even for the whole first year, I probably wouldn't have done anything apart from plant a tree and I knew it was a small garden, so I could only fit one tree in it. So I bought two trees, and I've planted them both. <laughs> but it's one, I've got a plum and a cherry, because I love edibles, and I love blossom, and you know, in the spring, they'll be beautiful. So that's all I was probably going to do, because actually a lot of stuff has come up through the year. But then Gardeners World came and knocked on my door and asked me if they could please film the garden. And then they're coming back at the end of the summer. So I feel I have to have done something. So I've actually gone out and bought quite a lot of plants and not yet planted them, but trying to keep them alive in their pots and do that before the end of the year, just so that there's a bit of a transformation for this year. And then yes. I'll probably, you know, tweak things around next year and, and, and do it a bit more slowly because you, you say you're going to do it. And I said this to them when they rang. I said, look, I'm not going to rush it. I'm going to just do it at the pace I want. And they said, fine. But then I did rush <laughs> because that's what happens, isn't it? You want, you, like you said, it's going out on TV. Yeah. You know, you want to be able to, to show people something nice. And this is very personal because yeah. this is the first time we've seen you actually do a garden for you. Yeah. So there is the added pressure. I wonder, anybody here started from scratch on their garden? Or in the process about to start from yeah. scratch on a garden as well. And especially if you've bought a new build. Yes. So, I mean, often you look at it and it's, stark that's the only word for it isn't it and those walls or the fences around are pretty grim and you just think where do you start so anybody else taken out a garden and started again because we've got one it's quite intimidating to do that i think when you when you're presented with a space that has mature plants in it i, I, I have a dilemma at the moment in fact can we do a vote is there not for a vote because i'm genuinely very unsure what to do about this so there, there were four mature roses in my garden when I moved in. How one high? One of them, big. One climber on the north-facing wall. One arch that's sort of tied in as you walk into the garden, you walk under a rose arch. And then two shrubs. One shrub came out because I want to put a greenhouse there. The other shrub is there. And I've waited to see these roses bloom. They are all a kind of candy pink that's not really my favourite colour. And none of them smell. But they're mature, lovely roses. And I'm really in two minds about whether... Do you want a show I, of hands? Can I, should I dig out my roses? Show of hands for yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Who said no? Does anyone say no? Okay. Okay, see us afterwards and we'll give you some cuttings. There you go. She'll feel a bit better. <laughs> Thank you so... Isn't that ridiculous? I need permission. But roses are so sacred to people and, you know, they can be amazing. The history of roses, you know, the, the trade in roses, they're medicinal. You can make rose water. The hips are great for coughs and colds and birds. And, but they don't smell. 
And I just don't see the point in a rose that has it, no scent. It's hard with the garden. I mean, yeah. I had a, I've got a very small London garden. And as you know, with being London, it's pretty warm. It's actually pollution rather than anything else, sadly. But I wanted to start from scratch. And I had that dilemma because I bought some palm trees. And you always say, think about what you plant. And they went from that to about 12 foot. And because the garden is sort of this size, they dominated. And I had to make that really difficult decision. And my husband and I were like, okay, we're going to actually get a crane to take them out rather than chop them down and put them somewhere. And then I spoke to some experts and they said they'll never survive yeah. if you crane them out. So it, it absolutely killed me to do I shouldn't use that phrase, but it was so difficult because they were so beautiful. But equally, I've now got a garden that I, I loved it before, but I love even more. And I've yeah. got more trees in my garden, not two dominating plants. So it's, this is it's, it. I wanted the wildlife in and they didn't like them. They do like my amelanchy and what I've got now, and yeah. the hornbeam. Palms don't really give that much benefit. And it is, it's really difficult because also, you know, we all know how much we love our plants. And when you're inheriting a garden, you know that the person who sold the house has loved those plants. They've, they've nurtured them and they've grown them and they may have even planted them in, in memory of something. Will you be planting with the future in mind? When I, I've been chatting to Monty and to Alan and, and, and I'm very fortunate to do it because as you all know, I'm a presenter. I'm, I'm, I love my garden, but I'm no expert. And I was asking them about the future, because obviously we all have our own views on what we want in our garden, but should we be planting with the future in mind? And Adam was saying, you know, obviously variety, but are you thinking that? Thinking, actually, this is going to be here a long time, and hopefully whoever buys my house after me, however many years down the line, won't be ripping it out. Yes. I think there's no accounting for taste with other people. You know, they might hate what I've put in and it's also very difficult to plant with the future in mind because it's very unpredictable I mean in we talk about drought you know we've, we've had a little bit of rain this morning but actually there's not been rain for a very very long time there's a hosepipe ban where I am um, from last summer no that's just come in this spring because the reservoirs despite lots of rain are still not full enough there are places there might the be somebody here um from if there's anyone from cornwall or devon there's parts of cornwall and devon which they were telling me earlier on in the week you've been in drought conditions since last summer hosepipe bands since last yeah. summer yeah it's there's a lot and yet we had the wettest i think it was february and march or february or march on record you know so you can't just plant for drought you have to also make an allowance to plant for extreme wet so how do we do it? I don't know. Choose plants that are very resilient. Look at your own garden and see whether you're more likely to be in drought or in wet. Mine is more likely to be in wet, and yet we are in drought now. So I think, I think also remembering that plants have a lot of resilience. What you definitely want to do for the climate, for the future, is, is put plants in your garden. And, you know, if you're putting paving down and everything, just make sure it's permeable. Make sure that that water can get through the paving and not covering everything in plastic. And, you know, this, if the more plants that we have, the more resilient our landscape will be because the roots will play a huge function in keeping the soil really nicely structured and holding it together, preventing erosion. Um, they'll also soak up an awful lot of excess water. So, yeah, plants, I think, are the key. Lots of them. Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned to have about having a greenhouse. Will you have polytunnels as well or just the greenhouse? Just the greenhouse. I think it's, it's quite small. In fact, the greenhouse has actually started. So the, the, the 
greenhouse that was on my garden here last year, um, I worked with Rupert Keyes and his wife, Ruth Gwynn, on building it, the whole garden, not just the greenhouse. But I'd had this idea for years. I wanted to make a greenhouse out of old sash windows. And we did it here. And then uh, Rupert and I had schemes that if I ever got my house, because actually it was here last year, a year ago today, that um, a friend of mine viewed it for me because I was here and I, was, I remember being on the phone to him when I was in between talks going, can you find, hey, how is it, how is it? And he made a little video. And, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it's been a year and it, it was all being schemed whilst I was here. And so Rupert has actually started building me a greenhouse out of old windows in, oh, my, how in my garden. So. And had I known you were looking for a property in the country, we could have put her on escape to the country, oh. couldn't we? <laughs> Could have done a little bit of work for her, done all the research. <laughs> yeah, lovely. So what are your ideas for the garden? What are the principles you think we should remember? Because not everyone's going to start from scratch, but we're constantly looking. No garden is ever finished. Yes. So what should we be thinking of? Well, for me, I am, like I said at the beginning, it's a di completely different palette of plants from what I'm used to growing with. It's I love kind of Mediterranean, um, highly scented herbs, that kind of thing. And this is different. This is going to be more ferns, wet, loving. So I'm actually going for quite a prairie scheme, which is new. I've never done that before. Because it's not a huge garden, part of the design is to blur the edges so that you can't see where my neighbour... My neighbour's lovely, but, um, you know, we have a, a small trellis in between mine and hers. And it's quite nice in... You know, this is my first ever garden I own, and I quite want to just lie in it, you know, in my swimming costume and catch some sun or whatever, without having my neighbour popping over the wall and saying, hello. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, it's about creating a sense of you don't quite know where the edges are, and I'm hoping that that will make it bigger. Um, it's got a little, all it has at the moment is a lawn, and I'm not a huge lawn person, but actually it's a lovely little lawn and, and, and it gets the sun and just being able to sit there on the grass is so much nicer than if it was paved or anything. So I'm, I'm blurring from lawn, then unmown lawn, and then into this prairie scheme, which will then just continue right to the edge so that you won't see, hopefully, where the edge is. And these tall grasses on the edges will give you privacy, but without blocking the sun. That's the plan. It's very simple. I'm not going to do too much because it's just a small space and I want it just to be one cohesive theme. Wonderful. But the challenge for me is not putting food in it. I do have an allotment, so I can not just fill it with veg. And I find that hard to do. So, you know, my training is in ornamental horticulture and, and then botany. So ornamental stuff is what, you know, I can do it with my eyes closed, but it's not what I love. What I really love is everything useful. So this is, it's really a challenge for me to create an ornamental back garden. And no doubt that in a year's time, I'll be hoiking out some of the grasses and sticking in some veg instead. <laughs> but, you know, for now, let's try it as an experiment, as a, as a designer, you as know, designer, to, to yes. create something that's just an ornamental space. And there's going to be a lot of people that might be breathing a sigh of relief to hear that you've got a small lawn that you love. Yeah. Because I, I sort of come from this from an outsider's point of view, because I grew up with lawns. That's what we had. And I appreciate, you know, what we've got to be a lot more sort of savvy and how we maintain them. But, you know, when, you, when you're down at Chelsea and you're at different shows and people are talking about, you know, get rid of your lawns, there's a whole, there's millions of people that adore their lawns. Yeah, you know, I, I have 
I have been one of those voices actually in the past and I had a big rethink, you know, get rid of your lawn. It's a monoculture. It is, you know, but at least it's a plant. And I'm very aware that a lot of the work I've done on garden makeovers and stuff where we go with this trend to get rid of your lawn, you know, it's going to be really modern, get rid of the lawn. And what goes in instead is paving. And that's so much worse for the environment. And so I've kind of swung back the other way and saying, well, look, it may just be grass, but that's something. And in that grass, you can have worms, beetles, a whole host of different creatures interacting. The rain falls on it and it soaks up that rainwater, which then feeds the soil. You know, there, there are a lot of benefits. And I am more excited by a wildflower lawn Lovely. than a, a grass lawn. And I definitely wouldn't advocate feeding it with lots of strong chemicals or using pesticides for things like leather jackets and things. I'm not, I'm not a pristine lawn person. But, yeah, I feel slight guilt, really, for people being made to feel bad for having a lot of greenery in their garden. Yeah. And actually, it can, it's a, it can be a good thing. And it also makes people very, very happy. Yeah. And I don't think we can forget that, yeah. You know, I really love a mossy lawn, though, and that does not make lawn lovers happy. <laughs> I really like a nice, soft, mossy, you can lie on it kind of lawn. <laughs> no mow may, and then you try and mow it in June, and it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, we were outside earlier on, and we were on Paul Stone's garden, a garden fit for a king, and there is that incredible, those incredible wildflowers that... Yeah. Um, do you have anything that is your sort of signature that you always want to put in a garden? Not specific. It, everything edible, but I, I always, always find myself going back to fennel. And I think it might be from those beach, those beach gardens along the shingle. Yeah. You know, fennel grows there, and it's a, it's just a favourite plant of mine. It's it's beautiful, so feathery and lovely. The foliage. It's very tall and statuesque. The flowers have a really lovely mustardy colour. And I think against particularly purple, that's really beautiful. They're very, very good for hoverflies and pollinators generally. You can eat the leaves. And then when the flowers go over, you can eat the seeds. And so every kind of part of it is useful. Fennel tea, really, really good as a relaxant. Um, we, we were just having a conversation earlier on about everyone's hay fever and, and rough throats. And someone was saying that fennel teas are really, really good for moistening your throat if you're going to be public speaking all is day. Is that right? So, yeah. We don't need the boiled sweets <laughs> in our pockets. No, we don't. Um, yeah, so uh, that's a plant that I would never create a garden without fennel. And I have already bought quite a lot of fennel for my have garden you? in Devon. Yeah. So we're going to see the next in Installment about your garden. When when that when is that going out on Gardeners World? I think they are coming to film at the end of July. So that means um, we'll see it beginning mid August. Mid August, yes, ish. Because it will happen on the two days, and then I think it goes out the following Friday. Right. And Francis, sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today and all the very best with the new garden. We thank look you. forward to seeing it later on on the show. Francis Tophill, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Francis. Hello, this is Kevin from the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation recorded at BBC Gardener's World Live, why not join us at our autumn fair at Audley End in Essex? It's taking place from the 1st to the 3rd of September and there'll be plenty of live chat on the magazine stage, plus beautiful borders, showcase gardens and loads of plants to buy. Find out more and get tickets at bbcgardenersworldfair.com.